Please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. This week was one of those weeks where I started off Monday with one sermon and I ended last night with another. So what, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to do the first three points on your outline on the back of the order of worship. And next week we'll do part two and we'll do uh, numbers four and five. So I'm going to cut the sermon short as far as points go. But you have to promise to be back next week. Um, also, there are some extra handouts from our Wednesday night discussion. I, I invite you to come and join us Wednesday nights in the Fellowship Hall. We, we're walking through the Bible readings together, watching the Bible Project videos, which are fantastic. If you've not been watching those, you need to start doing that this week. Uh, and there's a poster about Daniel and a handout that can help you to understand some of what you're reading. I hope that you're reading Daniel with us this week. Uh, so there's just a few of those, but you feel free to pick those up. Daniel wrote to his fellow Jewish exiles in Babylon to remind them of God's sovereign control over world history and to encourage them with God's promise of future restoration. He encouraged them to be faithful in the face of a prolonged period of time where the people of Israel would become an obscure, subservient nation to one Gentile world power after another. And some of the Gentile rulers would be harsh and oppressive. Others would be a little bit more favorable and supportive of the Jews. But through it all, the people could rest assured that God foresaw their troubles and He would see them through to eventual triumph. So as the book of Daniel opens, we see how Babylon had come and taken the people captive. They had ransacked Jerusalem and the temple. They had removed all the sacred objects from the temple and took them to Babylon and stuck God's sacred objects in the treasuries of their pagan gods and idols. And they, all, they had also taken the best and the brightest of God's people back to Babylon to re-educate them in the ways of Babylon, to erase their Jewish culture, to force them to embrace Babylonian culture. Babylon wasn't, con, wasn't uh, content with just taking away their land and their temple and their people. They attempted to take away their very identity as the people of God, to take away their faith. And so Daniel shows us that it is possible for God's oppressed people to survive and to even thrive in a culture that is hostile to their faith. And this is good news for us today because we are facing a culture that is growing ever more hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more than that, it's a culture that really is imploding because there are so many competing worldviews that are simultaneously claiming exclusive truth and rights while at the same time denying that there are any exclusive truths or universal rights. And so it's impossible for us to know from day to day what are we supposed to think is true? Who are we supposed to think is right? How are we supposed to think, live, speak, and act? We never know. We live in an unstable world. So how can we, like Daniel and his friends, stand and stand strong in an unstable world? I want us to look at three particular stories this morning. The first is in Daniel chapter 1, and it teaches us that we have to stand faithful in the little things. We have to stand faithful in the little things. In Daniel chapter 1, we see a clash 
between Babylonian and Jewish cultures. Daniel and his three friends were among those young people that were taken by Babylon for cultural re-education. They were taught to speak the language of Babylon, to dress like Babylonians, to eat and drink what Babylonians ate and drank. They were taught uh, to read and appreciate Babylonian literature and art. And they were even given Babylonian names. This was part of Babylon's utter conquest. They demanded total conformity to their ways. It wasn't enough just to inhabit their lands and capture their people. They wanted total assimilation into the Babylonian way of life. Sort of like the Borg on Star Trek. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. That's the way the Babylonians were. So look with me at Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. So the, the food and the wine that they were wanting these young men to eat and drink, Daniel said, no, those would defile me. I'm not going to do that. So he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And because Daniel and his friends were so faithful to speak up and say, no, we're not going to eat this food and drink this wine, look at verse 9 and 10, what God does. So God caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So Daniel proposed a contest of cultures. He said, give us ten days to prove that God's ways are better than the Babylonian way. And look at verses 15 through 20. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as you know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So, a few observations. One is that we are also in a clash, a contest of cultures. You know, Western civilization used to be based on the Judeo-Christian values and ethic and and way of thinking. That's no longer true. Western civilization has become a pagan culture. You see, modern-day relativism is nothing less than ancient-day paganism wrapped up in new packaging. Relativism essentially says that every person has the right and power to determine his or her own truth, especially religious truth, as well as his or her own moral code. In other words, there is no absolute, objective, big-T truth. Certainly there is no one true God, just lots of little-g gods, lots of little-t truths. This was the culture of Babylon and Persia and Greece, and Rome. They worshipped a pantheon of gods. 
including often their leader, their king, their Pharaoh, their Caesar, was considered one of those gods. But Jews and Christians maintained there's only one true God. And He alone deserves your worship and your allegiance and your obedience. Israel's statement of faith was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the first commandment was, You shall have no other gods before Me. And in Roman times, everybody was supposed to walk around saying, Caesar is Lord. But Christians walked around saying, Jesus is Lord. And so Jews and Christians, they either had to be assimilated or annihilated. Today's relativism is no different than ancient paganism. Being able to remake yourself however you imagine, to self-identify, that's the term right now, according to your preference. You get to choose your preferred pronoun these days. You get to determine your own truth. Those are some very godlike powers to claim, are they not? Each person, essentially today, is their own God. They get to rule their own self-contained universe. And by general agreement, you know, we just stay out of each other's universe. But if you dare try to say that your view is the only right or true one, as the Bible claims, as Christians claim, that Jesus is God, that there is only one true God and only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ, then you're going to get an angry response. Who are you to impose your morality upon me? In other words, hey, you can be your own God, I can be my own God, and you better let me. Now, unlike the Jews of the exile, our situation doesn't involve forced exile. You know, we don't have uh, threats of execution. But make no mistake, we are locked in a growing conflict with a pagan, relativistic culture that demands our total allegiance and our absolute adherence. Make no mistake, we are in a clash of cultures. My second observation is that like Daniel, we must choose our battles wisely in this clash. Notice that Daniel and his friends, they didn't reject all of the Babylonian culture forced upon them, did they? They didn't say, oh, we can't defile ourselves by reading that literature. We can't defile ourselves by wearing Babylonian attire. They didn't say, oh, we refuse to use these Babylonian names you've put upon us. No. The only thing they said would defile them was to eat the king's food and to drink the king's wine. And why is that? Why didn't they see the, the pagan education or the name change as being offensive? Because those things weren't in violation of God's law. But the food they were being asked to eat was not kosher. It was unclean. It went against what God had commanded the Jews. And the food and drink were also likely food and drink that had been sacrificed, had been offered to pagan idols. And so the, 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 the New Testament Christians in Rome, they dealt the same thing. They didn't want to eat food that was being sacrificed to pagan idols. And so since these Jews were in exile because of idolatry, Daniel and his friends didn't want to have anything to do with idolatry. So they refused the food and the drink. Today, we have a choice to make. And most Christians today fall into one of two extreme choices. The first extreme is to approach the surrounding culture with a hashtag resist mentality. 
These people shut themselves off from the world. They live in a Christian bubble where they only listen to Christian music and they only read Christian books and they only watch Christian movies and they only call Christian plumbers. These people mean well. Don't get me wrong. And they are correct. God doesn't want us to be of the world. But they miss out on the fact that God does want us to be in the world. You see, living in a bubble, I think, is actually kind of lazy. Because it allows us the appearance of holiness and faithfulness. But in reality, we fail to live out our calling to be salt and light. To engage the lost world out of love rather than run from it out of fear. But the second extreme is just as bad, if not worse maybe. And that's to adopt the culture around us as our own. To go all in and become so much like those around us, you can hardly tell that there's any difference between us. And these people may claim that, well, I'm being relevant. Or they misuse what Paul writes about freedom from adherence to the law. These people believe that, well, as long as I'm not sinning in the big ways, you know, I'm not killing anyone, I'm not lying or stealing or sleeping around, then it doesn't really matter what I watch or listen to, how I dress, whether I go partying at bars or get wasted on the weekend, or whether I cuss or tell dirty jokes. That God doesn't really care about that because I'm being real. I'm being authentic, whatever that means. Authentically sinful. Both extremes fail to use spiritual discernment about what is and is not consistent with following Jesus. And that kind of discernment is hard work. It takes time in God's Word. It takes time in prayer. It takes time in a faith community that can hold you accountable to living in the way of Jesus. Take movies, for example. I'm very discerning about the things that I watch. Does it glorify violence, drug use, or sexual immorality? If so, then I'm not interested. But is the message a redemptive one? Is it about forgiveness, restoration, and sacrificial love? Well, then maybe I'll I'll consider that movie, unless it has those other things in it. You see, a film doesn't have to be Christian to carry a Christ-honoring message. So that takes discernment. That takes prayer. That takes living out my faith in community with other people who are willing to say, you went and saw what? And of course, when we practice discernment and faithfulness in the little things in life, things that other people might think aren't important, but which are important to God, then we can expect to be met with ridicule. Or worse. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3-5, through 5, Peter says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living. And they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, we're not the first people to deal with this. First century Christians had to deal with this as well. But when we are faithful in the little things... Though we may face some persecution and ridicule, if we are consistent, Daniel shows us that God will cause us to find favor in the eyes of those who are watching. Even maybe the ones who publicly are ridiculing us inwardly are admiring us. They will see that God's ways really do lead to a better and fuller life. 
and we will prosper in ways that give us more opportunities to be faithful and give God glory. Or as Jesus said, if you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. For Daniel and his friends, that meant God blessed them with the choicest positions in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And Nebuchadnezzar esteemed them as better and wiser than all the wise men in Babylon. So let us stand faithful in the little things. Secondly, let us stand humbly for God's glory. Stand humbly for God's glory. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a disturbing dream. And he called for the wise men to interpret his dream, but there's a catch. He wasn't going to tell them what he dreamed. I mean, if they're so wise and powerful, they ought to be able to tell him what he dreamed as well as what it means. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. The astrologers answered the king, There's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among men. Well, Nebuchadnezzar didn't like that answer, so he ordered that all the magicians, enchanters, and wise men in the kingdom be put to death. So his guards go out to round them all up, including Daniel and his friends. Because remember, in chapter 1, they were elevated as the most wisest of all the wise men. So Daniel, as they're coming to round him up to kill him, says, Wait, 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 what is this about? And the guard tells him, and he says, okay, wait just a minute. I need to go and talk to the king. And so Daniel boldly goes and approaches the king and tells him that he would reveal to the king his dream and its meaning if the king would spare the lives of all the wise men in the realm. So Nebuchadnezzar agrees. And then Daniel, realizing what he's done, goes and begs his three friends, would you please pray for God to be merciful and reveal to me what the king has dreamed and what it means. And they do, and God does. And then Daniel gives this beautiful prayer of praise to God. And then Daniel goes back to Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him what he dreamed and what it meant. And basically, the king dreamed about this big statue made of different kinds of metal. Each represented Babylon and the subsequent kingdoms that would come after him. The Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans and beyond. And then he says, you dreamed of a giant rock that, that, was, that came out of a mountain and that rock came down and it smashed the statue's feet and the statue crumbled into pieces and the wind blew its dust uh, to the four corners of the earth so that it was no more. But then this rock grew to become a giant mountain. And he said, this is what the dream means, king. The kingdom of God will come. See, the rock represented Jesus, the Messiah, who would come during the reign of the Roman Empire and would smash it. I mean, do you know any Romans today? The Roman Empire is no more. But where are we sitting? In the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? The kingdom of God outlasts all the empires of the world. And that mountain is the kingdom of God coming to fill the whole earth with, with God's rule and His reign. And so after telling Nebuchadnezzar this, he falls in humble thanks at Daniel's feet. And here Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, gives the Lord glory and praise. And he not only spares the lives of the wise men, but then he puts Daniel in charge of all of them. And he gives Daniel and his friends wealth and honor and ever greater positions. Once again, the Lord and His ways are proven to be superior to Babylon's king and Babylon's ways. What no magician or sorcerer in all the kingdom could do, Daniel did because he relied on God for wisdom. See, God's sovereignty 
over kings and kingdoms was shown both in the interpretation of the king's dream, but also they were shown in the way in which Daniel gave God credit. Look back at verses 26 through 28. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. And then he explains them the dream. See, Daniel, he didn't seek or ask anything for himself in return here. In fact, the only thing Daniel asked of the king in return was that he would spare the lives of these pagan magicians and enchanters. He wanted to make sure that everyone knew who the sovereign Lord was, the God of all wisdom and power and mercy and grace. Or Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. That was Daniel's heart. That was his humble attitude. Like Daniel, we are living in a society where we are under constant scrutiny by people around us who deny there is a God, certainly the God of the Bible, a God who dwells among men. And the people of our culture instead turn to all sorts of other things for answers to life questions. They turn to false religions, to faulty human philosophies like relativism, to self-help techniques, to politics or entertainment, which these days are kind of hard to tell the difference between the two. Many people lose themselves in drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, or other addictions because they can't find any satisfactory answers to their questions. Many become fatalistic and turn to nihilism, believing that there aren't any answers. There is no God, no truth, no right or wrong, no purpose, and no hope. Now, rather than let that scare us or depress us, let it excite us and energize us because we are in Daniel's position. We do have the answer. We can point them to a life of purpose and a future of hope. Amen? Like Daniel, we can speak about our faith boldly and confidently to a world filled with questions. But we have to be certain that we are doing it humbly. Always giving God the credit and the glory. Perhaps you've heard about uh, the Ole Miss head football coach, Hugh Freeze, and his resignation. Now, he was one of the most outstanding Christian coaches in college football until his double life of sexual immorality and his questionable recruiting practices caught up with him. And his story is a reminder that everyone is in desperate daily need of God's grace and mercy. So I don't stand here to condemn or judge him. But there's an example for us here because I think what has made matters worse was that Freeze was so outspoken about his faith, but in a way that many people took as boastful, that tended to put the emphasis on his good works rather than on Jesus' grace. In fact, one writer reflected, to many observers, Freeze appears to validate his Christian faith by his religious works. His tweets describing quiet times and boasts of his team's religious activities communicate, look, I'm good. So when his phone calls to escort services and other activities came to light, naturally he faced a withering backlash from non-Christians. CBS sports writer Dennis Dodd said of his resignation, scores of coaches across the country smiled. They were sick of Frieza's self-righteous Bible thumping. 
Now, whether that's what he intended to do, that's obviously what it came across as to many people. Now, I want you to contrast that with former Georgia football coach Mark Richt. Yes, I know. I'm using Mark Richt as an example, okay, as a positive example. You know, he avoided the typical Christian sports talk. He, he wasn't afraid to talk about his self-doubt and how he nearly declined the Georgia job because he felt afraid and inadequate, how he would lay on the floor and cry when it seemed like things were falling apart early in his career. And Rick often boasted about his weaknesses while magnifying God's goodness. And I've heard non-Christians comment about how refreshing and attractive Coach Rick's witness was because he, he didn't live up to their expectations of what a Christian was like, you know, holier than thou and always preaching at folks. Instead, as one writer described, he had a transparent, humble, non-flattering version of himself in order to elevate the work of God in his life. And so Rick attracted people both to himself and to God. It's like what James 13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So when we try to demonstrate our righteousness through moral performance, we're leaving the gospel in the dust. Public figures and everyday Christians alike, we must remember that the most attractive witness for Christ is a humble one. And we best glorify God when we do what Daniel did. And that's honestly profess our weaknesses, our failures, to say before people, it's not me. I can't do this. I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. But let me tell you about the God who does. Let me boast about His grace and His mercy. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then the Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So let us serve others in Jesus' name. Let us share our faith without apology, but let us do it humbly and quietly, shining the spotlight on Jesus while we disappear into the shadow of the cross. Then God will bless us and glorify His name. And the third thing we need to do to stand in an unstable world this morning is we need to stand firm when others bow. Now this is a familiar story. You know it well. You've heard it in Sunday school, I'm sure. King Nebuchadnezzar builds a big golden statue, commands everybody in the kingdom to bow down and worship it whenever they hear the music play. But some of the Babylonian uh, officials there noticed that the Jews aren't doing that, especially Neb's three favorite Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And so Nebuchadnezzar, furious, orders the furnace or orders them to come to him, and he asks them, "Is this true?" And he says, "You know what? I'm going to put you to the test. We're about to play some music, and I'm going to see if you're going to bow down." But listen to what the three friends had to say in verse 16. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and He will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if He does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And so furious Nebuchadnezzar orders the furnace fired up seven times hotter and orders them bound. And it's so hot that the men who throw them in are burned to death. And almost immediately Nebuchadnezzar leaps up off his throne and looks into that furnace and says, wait, 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 didn't we just put three men in there bound? They said, yes. He said, then why do I see four men unbound walking around in there unharmed? And the fourth looks like the Son of God. And so he orders them to come out and out walk Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego unharmed, unloosed. Their hair and clothes aren't even singed. They don't even smell like barbecue. Instantly, Nebuchadnezzar praised God and issued a decree. Look at verses 28 through 30. The Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against their god be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. And then the king promoted them in the province of Babylon. You know, we may not have kings erecting giant golden statues and commanding us to bow and worship, but our culture, at times even our government, and companies, and schools, and universities, they are demanding us to serve their gods and to worship the systems and the ideologies that they have set up. The gods today, you see, they take different shape. They take the shape of identity politics and political correctness transgenderism and gender fluidity of same-sex marriage and the rainbow of LGBT sexual preferences. They take the form of abortion on demand and euthanasia on demand and socialism and I could go on. The Family Research Council came out with a report in 2014 that in the decade preceding that, there were 90 incidences in this country of religious freedom violations. In the three years after that, from 2014 to 2017, there have been 70. 90 in the 10 years before, 70 in the last three years. Now, we don't face the same level of persecution at all that many believers around the world are experiencing every day. Don't get me wrong. But we are seeing a rapid rise in government-driven religious hostility almost exclusively against Christians. And more than half of those 70 violations in the last three years were over Christian teachings about marriage and sexuality. A two-fold increase over the previous ten years. And we see these stories in the news. Companies like J.P. Morgan Chase, they're actually asking their employees whether they stand in support of LGBT rights. And you better watch how you answer, you'll lose your job. Christian florists, photographers, and bakers are facing death threats, vandalism, and legal action if they simply refuse to participate in a same-sex wedding, regardless of how politely they decline, regardless of whether or not they're more than glad to serve gay people in any other way other than a same-sex wedding. That doesn't matter. They're to be destroyed. 
Christian schools and hospitals and universities and charities, even churches, are facing lawsuits and government threats if they don't bow down to the golden calf of the LGBT agenda. Thankfully, though, here's some good news. The Family Research Council's report, they say, also found a growing courage among Christians, especially young Christians, willing to defend both their faith and their freedoms. Paul encourages us to such in Colossians 1.23 to continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Stand firm when others bow. Because these issues aren't going away, folks. And like Daniel's three friends, we're going to have to choose what we're going to do when we hear the music play. Will we go with the flow instead of rocking the boat? Or will we boldly stand for what we know is true and right, remembering to whom we're ultimately going to have to answer? Will we have enough faith in God to trust Him to stand with us as we are faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And will we, like Daniel's friends, love God enough to stand for Him and His truth, even if He chooses not to spare us from the unjust consequences at the hands of those hostile to the gospel? I don't know about you, but I choose to stand when the music plays. I will not bow down to what I know to be wrong. What I know that Satan is doing to deceive the lost who desperately need the truth, who are keeping in darkness those who desperately need the light. I choose to stand with people like Dr. Eric Walsh, the, the Georgia bivocational pastor who was fired from his government health care job because of the sermons he was preaching on the weekend about the Bible's teaching concerning marriage. I choose to stand with Aaron and Melissa Klein who were fined $135,000, placed on a gag order so they could not even speak about this and was forced to close their bakery simply because they wouldn't bake a cake for a gay wedding. I choose to stand with churches in Texas and Mississippi who have been fighting against local governments trying to seize their church property because of what they teach about the Bible's view on sex and marriage. I stand with Angela Hildenbrand, a high school senior who was actually threatened by a federal judge with jail time if she dared pray during her graduation speech. I stand with Peter, James, and John, who in Acts 5, 27-29, it says the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. Will you stand with them? Will you refuse to conform to the world's ways and boldly and faithfully and consistently follow Jesus Christ and worship Him alone? If you will, then you will give God the opportunity to rescue you and to demonstrate that He alone is God of gods and Lord of kings. Just consider the ways in which God might miraculously work today if His people would just have the faith to stand. Consider the testimony that we can give a watching world, a world that is so unstable precisely because it refuses to take a stand for anything that is true or right. You know the old saying, He who refuses to stand for nothing falls for everything. That's the world in which we live. But if we stand with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we join the ranks of countless saints who by their faithfulness in the words of Hebrew 11 show that they were longing for a better country, a heavenly home. 
And many of these saints died horrible death. They suffered immeasurable persecution. But the author of Hebrews says the world was not worthy of them. And they were all commended for their faith. See, God has something far better in store for us than anything this world asks us to bow down to. My question for you this morning is, will you stand up for Jesus? Will you stand up for Jesus? Jesus stood up for you. Jesus said that if we aren't willing to stand up for Him publicly before men, why would He stand up for us before the Father? You see, coming to faith in Jesus Christ is a personal thing, but it's never private. Would you come this morning and publicly profess your faith in Jesus Christ? Would you come this morning and unite with this church family because you want to stand with us as we try to speak God's truth and shine His light to this unstable world around us? Will you stand faithful in the little things this week? Students, will you humbly serve God and give Him glory at school this year? However God has spoken to you, would you come as we stand and sing?